Please stand if you are able for the second scripture reading, which is Esther 1, 9 through 22, found on page 483. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahajerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Agbatha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, Ahajerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mechmukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may be may not be Peeled, that Vashti is never again to come before King Aljuarez, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king, and the princes and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie. Well done. Um, you can't catch a break. Somehow the reading had all seven weird names from last time and seven new weird names. So you, you're unflappable, though. Well done with the readings. I appreciate it. Uh, this week we have so much to cover that I haven't time for a cute or clever introduction. Let's just briefly recap what has happened so far in the book of Esther. 
That is that we spent uh, quite a long time reading about all the beautiful, ostentatious stuff in the king's palace at this giant six-month-long party that he threw for his princes, military officials, everybody who was anybody, and then a week-long party for everybody, even anybody who was nobody was allowed to come, get their one-of-a-kind gold goblet, enjoy a week of partying. And at the very end of it, the king, Ahasuerus, said, I am going to show everyone how beautiful my wife is because I've showed them all my other possessions. May as well show them this one. And he called for her where she was having a classier party for the women. And he said, hey, you seven uh, eunuchs, go and get my wife. Bring her back here in her royal crown and we will all get an eyeful of her. And she said, no thanks. And that's when, as we read here, the king flew into a rage. He was so very angry that he had been rebuffed. And now he gathers together his advisors to talk about this. The problem, as King Ahasuerus sees it, is that he's very afraid. Fear is driving much of this. Afraid that none of the Persian nobles will be able to treat their wives like garbage and still command their respect, himself included. And this is a very big problem. And so he gathers together a council of seven sages to address the problem. Think about that for a moment. He asked his wife, hey, come here. She said no. And he said, this sounds like a job for my council of seven sages. Okay. He is going to take what should have been a small personal issue and turn it into this enormous empire-wide global blow-up. Later, Haman, who has many of these same shortcomings, will do the same thing and turn a personal issue with one other person into an empire-wide crisis, all to protect his little ego. And I believe today our culture continues to encourage each of us, maybe more than ever, to act in ways that will protect our own little egos as the most precious and amazing thing that you've been entrusted with. And I do think we all need to be careful, as we've said the last couple of weeks, about the Haman or Ahasuerus coming to the surface in our hearts where they may be lurking. But let's look for a moment at this council that he gathers together. Who exactly are these seven individuals? We know they've got uh, difficult-to-pronounce names. Beyond that, though, who are they? Some have suggested they are astrologers, uh, the magi of the book of Daniel and later the book of Matthew. Uh, but even though that's possible, it's far more likely that these are experts in the law. They've got intimate knowledge of what's called the law, the Medes and the Persians, which is so central to life in the Medo-Persian Empire that they need a, a group of people. And we read about this in several uh, ancient uh, historians and, and in many ancient writings, that there's this group of people there essentially saying, we know all the former decrees. We're going to make sure that our proceedings today don't infringe on any of those so that we're in the clear. They're simply called here, Chakamim, which means the wise ones. Chakam is the Hebrew word for wisdom. And clearly, this is a formal job title and not a description of their character. We look at the list of names, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce them all, Katie. You already did the heavy lifting. The first one, though, Karshina, is one that we find listed as a court official in the Persian Empire in what's called the Persepolis Tablets, which are rather famous fragments discovered in 1933 uh, from this period. Ancient sources reinforce the idea that this book is indeed intended to be taken as historical narrative at its core. And these seven guys, they had access that very few people had, maybe no one else, not even the queen. 
Meaning they could go before the king unsummoned. They could come before him actually any time he was not with a woman. That was the only limitation. Herodotus uh, describes how he had a royal sock that he would put on the doorknob of his bedroom. No, that's not true. And in, in case you think, wait a minute, while you're trying to be funny here, I don't want you to miss the fact that this whole passage, this emergency meeting we read about here is hilarious. Okay, this is, it's meant to be laughed at. It's satire. It's true, it happened, but it's presented to us as satire. This minor disagreement between a king and his wife turns quickly into the minutes of an official meeting, even listing all those who are in attendance. And when you look at these names of the seven advisors, the seven sages, they actually mirror the earlier list of the seven eunuchs. Being very similar, mirrored to the point of being in reverse order. So you have Mehuman and Memukin. You have Admatha and Abagtha. So first you had seven eunuchs going to deliver one simple message and accomplish one simple thing, bring me the queen, they fail. Now you have seven wise men here to offer sage advice and make this whole thing go away and avoid a major problem, and they fail. Now we're not 100% sure of the timing here, but the narrative seems to present this as happening immediately after the offense has happened. So it kind of paints all seven wise men with the same brush it has just painted this guy who's been drinking for literally 187 days. I don't know about you, but I don't know if more drunk idiots is the answer to this particular problem. As they gather together, cooler heads cannot prevail because there are no cooler heads present. Everyone is all worked up. And we've been told that the king's heart is merry, but as tends to happen when someone is in this state, it quickly goes from merry to very, very angry and sort of despondent. The question he asks his advisors, first of all, is annoying because he refers to himself in the third person. But if you read it carefully, you find it has nothing to do with the real problem. It has nothing to do with human relationships. In fact, it doesn't even acknowledge the humanity of Queen Vashti at all. He's only interested in the blowback on him, and he's interested in law and precedent. What will the law permit me, the sovereign king of all kings, to do? He's bound, of course, by it. And the answer that he gets is so filled with fear, you can almost taste it. Notice how, as Memukin kind of becomes the spokesman for the seven of them, we should, probably should assume this is their response together, collectively. But notice how their concern is for themselves. They're sure that this is going to make a problem for them, not just for the king. That the noble woman who were there and saw the way Vashti said, no thanks, I'm not going to go into the king's presence now, are going to start getting similar ideas that they're going to whisper to other people, to other people, and it's going to spread throughout every single household in the Persian Empire from the highest to the lowest. And this fear really resonates with King Ahasuerus. We see how incredibly weak he really is. Again, especially compared with his immediate predecessors, especially Cyrus the Great. He, he is seen to be incredibly weak both by his defensive overreaction to this slight and by how easily his own advisors play him like a sitar in this moment. This is the first dialogue of the book as Memukin begins to answer the question, what does the law permit here? 
And it is very telling that this is the first thing anyone actually says in a direct quote. Because the response that we get here kind of blows apart their whole worldview. Why is it that these men who are in charge are worried about women getting any ideas about their own agency or personhood? Well, it's because men need to be in charge. And why do men need to be in charge? Well, it's because they're not so prone to emotionalism. They're rational. They're level-headed. Sure, men would never say blow a minor domestic spat out of proportion and present it as some massive international crisis that threatens to destroy the world as we know it? No, men would never do that. Vashti didn't put on her crown and come to his party, and in their minds, they are so dramatic that this becomes like global warming times nuclear proliferation plus COVID squared or something, and they decide that if they do not act now, everything the very fabric of society and maybe the space-time continuum will unravel. One man's wounded ego then brings about a massively disproportionate attempt to patch up the outer veneer he has of power and stateliness and, and regalness and to kind of maintain the charade a little longer. His response, and he is right on board with these guys, is to banish the problem rather than deal with it, by banishing the person, rather than being reconciled to her. And this is where we start to see the irony, the intentional irony woven into this book of Esther really kick it up a notch. There is so much here that is ironic. First of all, if they really held such a high status, these noble men, and commanded such great respect in their homes, would they need a law to enforce it? Or would it just be the case? This reminds me so much of Michael Scott as a tot, saying, when I grow up, I'm going to have 100 kids, so I'll have 100 friends, and no one can say no to being my friend. This is just like infantile thinking. I'm going to make you all respect me, my authority. Another irony we see is that apparently, per the imperial edict that is going out, every man is to rule over his own house, except the most powerful man in the empire who has published the edict. This sovereign, King Ahasuerus, he obviously does not have any control over his whole house. If he did, we wouldn't be in this situation. The irony gets deeper when we consider the punishment on Vashti herself. What's her crime? She does not want to appear before the king. What's her punishment? You're not allowed to appear before the king. I can imagine her going, darn, no, not that. And then we have, of course, the fact that he is sending out word of what happened all over the place because he's so embarrassed by what happened. Now, one way the Persian Empire rose to the top was via its communication system. You know, we think of the precursor to something like the Postal Service or UPS being the Pony Express, right? They're out there riding, and it didn't really go all that well, and it didn't last all that long. What you really want to think about for efficiency is the Persian system of communication. They had set up many different routes throughout the empire, and every leg of every route would use a fresh horse, rested and ready to go. They could take a package or a letter 250 miles in one day, much of it along royal roads that were in very good condition. Better than Michigan, according to Xenophon. Uh, but think about this, a letter going from Susa to Sardis. Now remember Sardis from the book of Revelation, it's in Turkey. Susa is here on the Iran-Iraq border. That's where all this stuff is happening, by the way. 
This is 1,200 miles as the crow flies, further if you were to drive it today. And if that were to happen in the Persian Empire, a letter to go from Susa to Sardis, it would pass through 111 relay posts and take less than a week. That is incredible. And he says, you know what, let's use this communication system we have set up to send out this edict. Now, these edicts must be universally publicized because they are universally binding. And oh, how funny is it that this ham-fisted attempt to save face causes the king's most personal domestic failures and his most embarrassing moment coming at the end of this big party about how great he is to be broadcast out far and wide to everyone in every home in their own language to make sure they can understand it. So it's a very ironic thing that's happening here, but it is also very unjust. Notice who's not here. Vashti. She is not present. There was no sense that she should have a say to be able to explain herself, to say, listen, you knew this was a bad idea, or if you would have asked, I would have explained what was going on or why I couldn't come. No, she's not, she's not there. She's not represented. Notice that she's never actually found guilty of breaking any existing law. They've got to trump up a new one and then say, oh, ex post facto, we don't care about that. You broke the law I just dreamed up, so you are out. In this nation, this society, this empire obsessed with laws and edicts, they just do whatever seems right to these eight guys who aren't thinking clearly in any sense. And notice that before the king has even ruled on this, Memucan has already dropped the title queen. He subtly does it partway through his little speech and just starts calling her Vashti. Like, like just some, anybody. She's still the queen. And so there's this great disrespect of the throne, even while he's freaking right out over this alleged disrespect of the throne by Vashti. Finally, this response, in addition to being ironic, and unjust is very disproportionate. And that is such an understatement. This manufactured sense of having been gravely wronged leads to an enormous backlash and overreaction, both in the, the severity and the scope of the response. It is too much and too wide. This is the exact same thing Haman's going to try to do. That guy won't bow to me? Well, why don't I kill everybody in his ethnic group? There is something very childlike here. This, this about face as well. I want you to come here so we can see you. You won't? Well, then I never want to see you again. Very, very immature. Then there is this final suggestion by Memukin. We're going to depose her and replace her with someone, quote, better. Some translations say more worthy, which makes him sound like he's being less of an idiot than he really is. It's actually more good. Just somebody better. Somebody better in what way? As the plot unfolds, their focus is on physical beauty. But in that moment, he probably meant someone who'll do whatever she's told without question. That'd be someone better as queen. And yet when he gets around to replacing Vashti, he sees it obviously as a chance to kind of upgrade to a younger, prettier wife than this one who just angered him for a moment. I see here, though, despite their heathen thinking, a little callback, a biblical callback by the author of Esther to 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, in which Samuel, the prophet and judge, is talking to Saul, the king of Israel, 
And he says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to one better than you. Same Hebrew. Someone better than you. And of course, you say, little ruddy David, better than a head taller than everyone else, super uh, Saul. And yes, he turns out to be better. He turns out to be better for them. He turns out to be better for God's glory. He turns out in every way to bring about God's great plan of redemption because he himself is going to be the ancestor of Jesus Christ. He is the messianic line through whom the Redeemer will come. Providence is at work here. And we see the same thing happening in Esther. He is going to look for someone who is going to knock his socks off in the most carnal ways, and God is going to, in the midst of that just debauchery and carnal thinking, bring into place the one woman who will bring about his will in this moment. Providence is very much at work when you can see a royal marital spat which seems to me like the least significant thing in the world. I walk right by them every time I go to Kroger. I don't care. But God can use it. Consider the motives at play here and the actual effect. The motive is I have to save face. I have to keep the veneer that I am the greatest. I am above and beyond, maybe even more than a human being. And yet God uses it to humble him. God uses it to save his people. God will use it for his purpose as he does everything. 1 Corinthians 1.19 For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. They gather together in this little brain trust and yet God says, I'm going to thwart your so-called wisdom and override it. As Joseph said earlier in Genesis you meant it when you threw me in that pit and sold me to the Arab traders as a slave for evil, obviously. But God was using it for good. This is how our God works. This is what we see in the book of Esther. This is why you should never, ever say this is the book of the Bible that God does not appear in. He's all over it, as we've said time and time again already. And we see this happening into the New Testament. The greatest example of men meant this for evil, but God uses it for good is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ, where he is nailed to a cross, an innocent man, the only truly innocent man to have ever lived and executed as a common criminal. It is meant for evil by the Sanhedrin. It is meant for evil by Judas. It is meant for evil by the crowd that mocks him and, and laughs at him, but God used it for good for the redemption of his people. Or even going further, a different Saul, right? He holds the coats as everyone starts stoning Stephen to death. And what happens? The church in Jerusalem says, it's too, too hot here. we got to get out of here. We can't take it. And they all go out in all directions and they flee outward. What man meant for evil there, God used for good, bringing the gospel then to every corner of the Roman world. Well, last week we began to contrast this king, Ahasuerus, in this situation with the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And I said we'd continue that this week, and so we shall. And I want to point out five major differences between Ahasuerus and Jesus. And then I want to talk about three ways in which we, as we live our lives as servants of Jesus, can honor one and follow one and not the other. First of all, well, Ahasuerus only cares about maintaining his power, his status, his image. Today we might say his brand. Jesus did not care about that in the least. 
on The Chosen, uh, which is a, a program that, that uh, kind of fictionalizes the life of Christ, but in a way that really tells the, the biblical stories. One of my favorite moments was, as he's about to get up and give the Sermon on the Mount, several of the women who are following him come up and say, you look too boring. We need to give you some kind of pop of color. And they have three sashes. And of course, one of them's red, one of them's purple, one of them's blue. And you're like, oh, he's going to wear the blue one like every Sunday school painting every, everywhere, right? And, and they say, which one do you want? He says, I cannot emphasize how little I care about what I look. And I thought, man, that's not in the scriptures, but how that just embodies Jesus Christ himself. He did not come and walk amongst us in a way to look like the king of kings. He is the king of kings. He came for another reason. We read in Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't from somewhere impressive, but Nazareth. And he made that known. He wasn't out to impress like a Hasuerus. You know, today, even people who are supposedly leading by principle, a lot of politicians, they'll gather together focus groups. And they'll work out through those focus groups not only color schemes and, and logos for their campaigns, but also what they allegedly believe, what tests the best with the most people so that they can get into office. We see this again and again amongst the wealthy and famous. I, I, I got to tell you, somehow I got on this thing where Twitter, my Twitter feed is just full of, uh, you know, 10 people hilariously caught lying on social media, uh, uh, 10 embarrassing things that happened to celebrities. And, and once in a while, if I'm really bored and, and I haven't had a good meal in a while, I'll click one and I'll go, oh, it is funny that celebrities embarrass themselves. And there was one where back-to-back, Justin Bieber and Bow Wow both got caught in the same lie, saying, look, bought a plane. I'm taking my, my private plane from here to here, my, my sweet jet, and here's a picture of it. And then while they were posting it, someone two rows behind them in a regular commercial aircraft was like, this is what he's actually doing. This is not Jesus. This is a Hasuerus. We serve a God who is not trying to impress because he does not need to impress because he created everything out of nothing. He came to save us. That brings me to number two. No one in this high-level meeting of these seven guys ever suggests forgiveness. It's off the table. It's not even brought up as a possibility because you can't be soft in any way, much less show vulnerability or something, not even to your own people or your own household or your own wife and maintain the kind of reputation that Ahasuerus wants to maintain. He would order every wife, starting with his own, to respect her husband as if that's how respect works. Rather, respect comes naturally when it's earned. And we look at why Jesus' followers followed him. Out of fear? Out of coercion? No. I think a great example is the woman who comes in while he's seated in the Pharisee's house. And she weeps on his feet and she, she dries his feet with her hair and she anoints his feet. And he says to them, she has been forgiven much. Therefore, she loves much. And he tells a parable to that same effect. She's been forgiven much and so she loves much. So she's here at my feet worshiping me. We love our king not because we are so afraid that he will crush us if we don't, but because he has forgiven us at the cost of his own blood. And with that comes respect. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, what we mean there is not we are scared silly and then we come and fall on our face so that he won't 
pancake us like the, the gods of the heathens, but rather it is a reverential fear. It is a respect that goes deeper than any human respect could, certainly any respect that could be demanded. And demand it as he might, Ahasuerus never really will have it. Thirdly, our king, therefore, is meek and lowly. Meekness and weakness are not the same thing. But when he came to show us what his love for us would look like and what our love for each other as a result should look like, it was in meekness. It was, yes, I could call on 10,000 angels, but rather I will suffer on your behalf. Yes, at any moment, I could make you fall down on your knees. As one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for now, I just call, come and see, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. You can't have forgotten yet from Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, this description of Christ as our loving bridegroom. In instructing husbands on how to love their wives, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Christ is the greatest example of a bridegroom, a great example of uh, a loving husband and the example for every Christian home today on how we could submit to one another in love, care for one another, and not let little things blow up like they did in the palace of Ahasuerus. In John 13, remember, Jesus rose from supper, and this should have been the big coronation scene if you're, if you're kind of following the arc of the Gospels. This should have been when he said, okay, let's sharpen some swords. Somebody go get me a crown. This is happening. And yet instead he rises from supper. We read he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is our king. The most powerful one in the room, the most powerful one in the cosmos. And yet he is doing the lowest work the work of a house slave in that culture, to show us that he came to serve, that he came to seek and save the lost, and to show us how we should love one another. He says, what I have done for you, what I, your teacher and Lord, have done for you, so do one for another. Fourthly, we see when we compare these two kings that we do not need to fear, like apparently Vashti did upon offending or insulting our king, even when we see that our pride is followed by a fall, like it, it is for Ahasuerus. I've warned you guys about praying for humility because the answer comes quick and it comes big time. I've experienced that a number of times. So only pray for that one if you're serious. But even if you, you really want to see God at work in that way, you don't even have to pray for it. Just start boasting. And here it comes. God tends to humble the proud. And we read, of course, in Proverbs that pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the, the fall. But even when a haughty spirit, when pride, when, when our getting a big Ahasuerus head may be accompanied by or immediately followed by a fall, we do not need to fear that our God in some petty, fickle move has grown sick of us and intends to replace us with a better bride. When we read in Revelation 3, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, be earnest, therefore, and repent, we know that he intends to continue to dress us, his bride, in the, the spotless linen of his righteousness and present us on that day at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Even, even though 
unlike Vashti, who barely did anything, if she did anything wrong, we have truly transgressed our king's perfect law, made a mockery of his love for us, and put ourselves above him and before him. And unlike Vashti, this is not a one-time thing, but again and again, day after day, year after year, we continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. With every sin, we're rejecting his reign and instead putting ourselves on the throne. This is no slight. This is open rebellion. It's spiritual treason. And he had one near his throne offering him similar Memukin-like advice. Now, granted, seven uh, advisors is more than one, but the one near the throne of God in Zechariah 7 and in Job chapter 1 is far more cunning and far more devious than any human who has ever walked the earth. And he says continually, look at the filth. Look at the filth on these people that you call your servants. Forget about them. Punish them. Destroy them. And he continues to accuse. In fact, his name means accuser. And yet our king would not be swayed, unlike Ahasuerus. Our king would not forget us. He will not banish us. He will not bar us from his presence. Even though we couldn't actually come into his presence, we couldn't appear before him. Not because of some dings to his ego, but because he is holy and we, again, are sinful Filthy in the sight of God, something the devil loved to point out when he had a job there. Instead of issuing a royal decree of our exile, though, like Ahasuerus, our king opened a way back into his presence at such a great cost to himself. Well, Ahasuerus flew into a rage at having been humiliated a little, having been wronged. Our king was willing to be humiliated all the more, to bear the punishment for our sins. To have the Father turn his face away from him, that we could be his spotless bride for eternity. So Jesus does not rule on a whim like Ahasuerus. He, he doesn't legislate on the fly out of fear and insecurity. He chose you from before the foundation of the earth, if you are his servant, if you are his disciple, and he will never let you go. Ahasuerus leaves the one who has wronged him and goes to the 99, even more. He says, gather the many, all the women you can. Bring them together and I'll decide who gets to be the next queen. Jesus, on the other hand, says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. See, this brings me to my fifth point of contrast. Well, we had this whole opening section about how lavish the life of Ahasuerus apparently was. Jesus is far more lavish in a far greater sense. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's the quote-unquote mean Old Testament God. I think of the word prodigal when I think of Ahasuerus. Because he was prodigal. What does the word prodigal mean? Does anyone know? We've kind of lost it a little bit. Lavish. Lavish. Yeah, exactly. To be prodigal means you're spending money or resources freely, exuberantly, extravagantly. You're, you're, you're like 
Aziz Ansari on every show he's ever been on, right? Just bling, 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 gold cards. Everywhere you go, you are the, the player, the big shot, right? That's Ahasuerus. Why is the story of the prodigal son then called the prodigal son? Well, because when he says to his father, basically, you're dead to me because I now want my inheritance and I want to go spend it while I'm young and good looking, and he takes the money, he goes to a foreign land and he starts spending lavishly. Prodigally. He's a, everyone's like, this guy is so prodigal. Hashtag prodigal. We hang out with him. He's our friend. Well, he has money. They spend all this time with him. They become his closest friends. And as soon as he runs out of money, they're nowhere to be seen. Tim Keller said that we ought to call that parable the prodigal God. Because that's what we're seeing here. This, this is short-lived prodigality. Just made that word up. This guy doesn't have as much money as he thinks and he runs out and it's over and that's, that's it. But when he says, I'm going to go back home because even the servants in my father's house live better than I am living here in this Gentile land and he's on his way up the road and he's tattered, he's in rags, he's broken in spirit, he's, he's going over the speech in his head of what he's going to say to his dad when he sees him and his father looks out and recognizes something in the gate of this broken uh, you know, dreadlocked guy coming up the road, and he says, that's my son, and he goes running, which you would never do as a, as a man in that society, but he begins running down the road toward his son, embraces him, and what is his first thing he says? He says, okay, let's go and get the fatted calf, boom, we're having veal parmesan tonight, I want you to get a ring for this guy's finger, I want a robe for his back, I want this guy to have the most prodigal night of his life. He welcomes him back. And the real prodigal thing here is the grace, the forgiveness, the willingness to say, rather than saying, no, no, you're banished because you wanted your inheritance early, to say, no, I welcome you back into my home. I, I am going to show you lavish kindness. I'll lavish gifts on you. I'll especially lavish grace on you. I'm willing even to run to you because I am so happy to see you again. Our king is truly prodigal, is truly lavish. That's what Reformation Day, which is what today is, is all about, recognizing that the grace that brings our salvation to us is nothing we've earned, nothing we've cobbled together, nothing we've saved up. It is a lavish and prodigal gift just heaped on us by a God who gives good gifts to sinful people. And so when we say, how should we live then? It's a response to outrageous, unbelievable, lavish love. It's not that we are trying to earn his love. It's our response to what we've received. We've been forgiven much, therefore we love much. And so as we close, let me just offer three suggestions of how we might live for Jesus in light of what we see here in this little closed-door meeting. First of all, we see that Ahasuerus, as I mentioned last week, has no accountability. This is from the very beginning of Scripture, presented as a foolish way to live. He's got yes-men surrounding him. They only point out how he'd been wronged, not how he'd been wrong, and that's a problem. And today, I believe that we can find you probably can't find seven eunuchs and seven sages that you can call your own, but you can probably find a group of seven friends who will treat you that way. 
who will affirm everything you say and never say, listen, I think you may be in the wrong here. Or listen, I think you may not see this from quite the right angle. Maybe we need to pray about this together. And we can be tempted even to, in turn, do the same for others. You can become someone's very good friend by just telling them what they want to hear. But better is open rebuke than hidden love, right? Well, read again and again and again about how flattering tongue is odious to the God of heaven. You see that throughout the book of Proverbs. I believe there is a direct connection here between the king's lack of repentance and remorse and his lack of accountability. They go hand in hand, two sides of the same coin. God has given us the church to hold each other up, to encourage each other, to forgive each other, and when needed, to rebuke each other. And when that happens, we find ourselves iron sharpening iron, growing closer and closer to Jesus and making fewer and fewer of this kind of terrible mistake. Psalm 1-1, the very beginning of the book of Psalms, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's doing all three here. He needs to read the, the book of Psalms. He needs to read the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. My son of sinners entice you. Do not consent. And here they are enticing him. But he's begging for them to do so. We need someone to show us our blind spots, not help us ignore our blind spots. And that is very unpopular today. Positive vibes only. Even those who would say, I am a preacher of the gospel. In fact, millions and millions of people tune in to me every week will tell you if someone's really got a negative energy in your life, you don't need that. Cut them right out. Just what Ahasuerus did. You bring that negative energy in here, you're banished. Oh, you tell me everything I want to hear? You're one of my sages. We don't want to live that way. The church is not meant to operate that way. We are not meant to operate that way. We need people who will remind us and remember that all of us still have the sin nature in us. And as we are being uh, made a new creation, we have to fight against it. We have to mortify the flesh. Romans 6.19, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Having someone who will hold you accountable can keep you from going down that first road. Lawlessness to more lawlessness and keep you on the second. Righteousness to sanctification. We each still have the old Adam, the impudent little King Ahasuerus living in our hearts. And when we feed the flesh, we will find ourselves going down that same tragic road as he did. Secondly, when wronged, in light of what Jesus has done for us and the kind of king that he is, we strive for forgiveness and restoration, not revenge and condemnation. So there's no sin that anyone can commit against you that can surpass the power of the cross to bring reconciliation not only between the offender and God, but between brothers and sisters, to bring unity within the church. This is something that we struggle with, how there's a sin curse in the world and, and it makes everything so, so complicated. But if it comes down to whether or not to forgive and restore someone, it's not all that complicated. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
There are, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally here, I think we see the tension of the Christian life in this passage, where we are implicitly warned against surrounding ourselves with the scoffers, the wicked, who would lead us astray, well, at the same time, following Christ's example of welcoming sinners rather than shunning them, of, of welcoming and embracing sinners rather than treating them the way Ahasuerus would treat even his own wife when he'd run out of use for her. Remembering that just as Christ welcomed us, while we were yet sinners and continually welcomes us into his presence as we go on sinning and falling short of the kingdom of God and coming to him again and again confessing our sins and repenting. We do not want to, like Ahasuerus, fall into a pit of banishing problems by banishing people rather than dealing with both. Throwing people out because of their sins devaluing them because of their past. Churches even do this, and it is a shame when it happens. To say it's inconvenient to have you around you don't reflect well on us. We're going to bring in people who would look a little better in the glossy brochure. We're going to bring in, well, you know what, let's, let's have a big uh, you know, uh, beauty pageant, just like a Hezuaris, and we'll find the most, oh, you don't even need to do that anymore. You can just go on a stock photo website and pretend those people attend your church. Listen, we have the opportunity every day to either be the kind of lavish that Ahasuerus was, where he said, everybody look at me. Look at me, look how great I am, look how together I am, look how wonderful I am. And that falls empty every time. It backfires every time. It runs out like the prodigal son every time. Or we can be lavish as our Lord Jesus is. Lavishing love and mercy and forgiveness and restoration on people going over the top in extravagance. And if you took the, the lavishness of our forgiveness, our love, our grace, our mercy, and compared it to the lavishness that we read in this party in the palace of Ahasuerus, we would come out on top. We have that opportunity every day. For those who serve Jesus and not the kings of this world and the spirit of this world, it's a no-brainer. We have a prodigal God. Let's be prodigal people. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this odd meeting that took place, this humorous account of eight men, the most powerful in the world at that time, trying to decide how to work out a small marital disagreement. Lord, we laugh at it, but we recognize that we have the seed of that kind of foolishness in us. We have the sin nature. We have the possibility of falling down that very same trap. And Lord, we pray that we would follow you instead that you would help us to lavishly forgive, to look for opportunities to show mercy and grace, that we, like your son Jesus, would reach out to all who are broken, all who feel worthless, all who are angry, all who feel separated from God, and rather than shunning them because they don't make us feel good or reflect well on us, we would embrace them and tell them there is a God in heaven who loves you. There is a Savior who bled and died for you. Lord, we pray that that would be the King that we serve this week. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.